Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Now, we are a week late on this episode, so we're going to make up for it in a couple of ways. First of all, we have two episodes this week. Uh, And second of all, these are going to be a bit of a different form of episode. I've been on the road uh, for the last week, and I'm on the road uh, the next week again, and I'm giving speeches to colleges and then to businesses. So I thought that I would share some of those with listeners, both the speeches and the question and answer periods, which are, are really interesting because you get all kinds of audiences with all sorts of different questions from you know, more technical questions, uh, maybe from people who agree all the way to uh, people who disagree uh, massively. So on, we're going to do two this week, and the one we're going to do on this episode is a speech that I gave at Vassar College, and this has actually become maybe the most uh, well-known speech I've ever given. Uh, It was covered by uh, a really good journalist. um, His name is uh, completely escaping me. Sorry, Stanley Kurtz, who's written a bunch of really interesting stuff on on Bill McKibben, on the so-called divestment movement, which is seen as a way of shaming the fossil fuel industry, making it public enemy number one. Um, Anyway, he, he covered a story about my... Uh, my speech at Vassar, and one of the, the big reasons that he covered it was because there was an enormous amount of hostility toward the student group, and particularly the student leader who brought me in, uh, a group called MICA, I think it's Modern Independent Conservative Alliance, uh, whatever that means. And it's it was led by a young man named Julian Hassan, who uh, brought me in, who started a mini organization called Vassar Loves Fossil Fuels, modeled after CIP's I Love Fossil Fuels. And he was met with an enormous amount of resistance, uh, up to and including vandalism and various forms of intimidation. Uh, certain students, so called moderates or conservatives, told him that he should pay me not to come to the campus because I would somehow embarrass them. And there's, uh, but you know, most of the hostility was stemming from from the so-called uh, divestment movement. Now, needless to say, uh, I did not. He did not. He did not accept that offer to pay me not to come, and I certainly would have protested at such a thing because I, you know, the more controversy, the more I wanted to come. Uh, so I, I gave the speech, and and you'll hear it for yourself. Uh, and I, one of my goals was just to be as as friendly to the audience as possible, to be as engaging and open and, and welcoming of hearing where they're coming from from the outset. And it, I thought it was going really well, and I think a lot of people thought it was going really well. And then at one point in the speech, as you'll hear, uh, uh, a young man stood up as I, I had just finished explaining how vital fossil fuels and particularly oil are in terms of modern agriculture and in terms of the powering the machinery that literally keeps us alive. Uh, and you know, there's nothing comparable to oil in, the, in this respect. Uh, so seven billion people's lives in one way or another hang in the balance. And then someone got up and gave this 
a very sort of odd uh, pre-written speech about how I wasn't considering the human costs of fossil fuels when I, I was talking exactly about that. So obviously he had this plan in advance. And then, and then he said that basically no one should listen to this and they should go leave. And so he staged a uh, so-called walkout. Now, it was completely premeditated and certain people had come uh, just to leave. So as I said later, it's their, their bodies came in, but their minds didn't. And fortunately, not all that many people left. And I don't know if anyone left who hadn't been planning to leave in the first place, but the vast majority of the audience stayed. And it was, uh, you know, I think it was, it was a really interesting time for the rest uh, of the people. So it was, it was an enjoyable experience. But I think Stanley Kurtz, to circle back to him, you know, he was really horrified by it. Uh, by the behavior in advance, um, by you know the behavior at an event in terms of just a speaker comes and you just stand up and interrupt him and try to embarrass him and uh, you know demand that people leave the event and not listen to him. You know, and he's correct. I mean, for sure, it's incredibly inappropriate behavior. As the speaker, my focus is is on just communicating the information, uh, no matter what. And, as people listen to the show probably know, I have a good deal of experience uh, dealing with all sorts of hecklers. So, uh, you know, it wasn't in, in the moment. It didn't. It didn't strike me as anything but just another part of the event where someone was trying to embarrass me, and uh, it wasn't particularly successful. Uh, but I think he Kurtz makes some really good points uh, about just that the inappropriateness of this kind of behavior, and I, and I tend to think. If I saw, if I saw a speaker, particularly someone less experienced with dealing with these sorts of situations, I would be very angry uh, from the outs uh, from the outside. So I really appreciate his article, and you can uh, check it out at, at nationalreview.com. And if you go to facebook.com/slash/thepursuitofenergy, he actually has two articles as of the time I'm writing this, and and they're they're worthwhile. So anyway, you get to hear what all the controversy is about, and see what you think. Our hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. All right, so we've never met, so I have no idea what you guys think about things. The, the Dick Cheney masks give me a slight hint, uh, with some of you, just <laughs> wishing that the Bush administration would come back. <laughs> uh, so I want to play a little word association game. So, um, we're going to go around the room, there's a bunch of you, so thank you for coming. And I just want you to pick one or two words uh, that you would use to describe the fossil fuel industry, just so I can get an idea you know, where people are, and that way we can tailor it a bit uh, more. So, gentlemen. What's that? Large. Large, OK. We're just going to go around the room. OK, you can pass. Yeah. Uh, 
in the back. What, what, what's the question? Oh, word association, fossil fuel industry, what do you think? Oh, cool, horrible. Great. So crowd seems not entirely evenly distributed on this issue. So let's just just so I know, I'm going to give you three options. Who supports divestment, is against divestment, and not sure. Supports divestment. Okay, against divestment. Uh, and not sure. Say there's absolutely a future for other energies. Well, 
And I guess our position is there is a future for other energies, and they can do the same thing as fossil fuels. Okay. Uh, anyone else? All right. Well, we got all those adjectives, so we're sort of getting a sense on sustainable, dirty, etc. Anyone want to speak up on the the anti-divestment side, particularly if you're not from Syria? Yes. I can say that everything from light bulbs to Facebook, Twitter, live stream, all the results, totally a constant. The way things are doesn't mean that that's how it has to be. The Okay, so let's watch the language a little bit. So I'll take that as the third opinion and not an interruption. Um, okay. Maybe if you provide an alternative that equals the fossil industry, then go ahead and do that. But currently, there is not. Okay. All right. So I'm going to share some opinions about this issue. Um, so I want to say first, there's a lot, it seems like, you know, the big overarching concern is environmental. Probably the biggest thing I've heard about is, is dirty. And I've heard that come up over and over. And that is for sure, so I just have a lot of quotes here. You know, that is uh, a serious issue and it's something to consider if you're, you know, if you're evaluating an industry, you want to know what is its impact on, you know, the environment uh, that we live in, in the world that we so I want to, and, and it, it's possible for energy industries to have incredibly uh, devastating effects on human life, including killing people. So I want to just read you like, a very vivid account uh, of you know, an energy industry that you know, has harmed many, many people. And I just want you to think, like, should we divest? So this is, uh, it's not that easy to read, but I think it's necessary. So um, this is a first-hand account visiting where this technology takes place. Uh, an old farmer stares despairingly out across an immense lake of bubbling toxic waste covered in black dust. He remembers it as fields of wheat and corn. Hidden out of sight behind smoke-shrouded factory complexes lies a five-mile-wide tailing lake that has killed farmland for miles around, made thousands of people ill, and put one of the key waterways in jeopardy. An apocalyptic sight greets us, a giant secret toxic dump made bigger the lake instantly assaults your senses. Stand on the black crust for just seconds and your eyes water and a powerful acrid stench fills your lungs. For hours after our visit, my stomach burst and my head throbbed. We were there for only one hour. But those who live here breathe in the same poison every day. Villagers say their teeth began to fall out, their hair turned white at unusually young ages, and they suffer from severe skin and respiratory diseases. Children are born with soft bones and cancer rates rock. Large amounts of highly toxic acids, heavy metals, and other chemicals are emitted into the air that can breathe and leak into surface and groundwater. Villagers rely on this for irrigation of their crops and for drinking water. So if that's dirty as can be. So I mean, should we divest from this kind of thing? Yes. Yes. Well, well, that's, say yes. that's where they make the magnets for wind farms in China. Yes. Yeah. So this is I'm, what I'm describing here is one of the central processes in wind power and also solar power. So who would raise their hand and say we should divest from these technologies? Companies, not technologies, right? The companies that do that. Well, actually, inherent in the technology, 
is that process, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mining process that requires you're trying to extract a certain very tiny amount of stuff. Um, but the industry as a whole is generally, at this point in time, complicit. Um, but anyways, I, I just want to show again two things that we should digest from the wind industry. No, I'm not saying the process can't be approved. So we'll get to that in a second. So that, that might be your reason for not wanting to divest. Um, okay, so not, not many hands, so, um, which is interesting, right? Because this is, uh, in terms of, you know, this is a very, very deadly process. And if we look at, you know, the number of lives actively taken by sources of energy, this is, you know, per person uh, greater than, than false fuels. And yet there doesn't seem to be much interest. So I'd be curious, for the most adamant people, why why isn't this sufficient justification? By the way, I do not think we should have that one. But I'm just curious because... So does anyone have any thoughts on that? Yes? Well, especially if it can, if it can be improved, like, that's just not a very good reason to divest from something. Okay, but what if it can be improved to the point where a certain number of people will necessarily die? Uh, well, I guess you have to compare it to that other Okay, interesting. So you have to compare it to other options. Um, anyone else? There's a little fire on this one. Okay, so I, I mean I agree with basically what you said. I mean with, with any with any technology that human beings undertake, there are always going to be benefits and there are always going to be hazards. And just a point I want to make about these issues, and whenever we think about them, we have to be really, really precise and clear about what is the big picture, and what are the benefits, and what are the hazards. We need to think clearly about both of them. So simply say, pointing to something and saying it's dirty is not enough. Otherwise, we should ban windmills uh, and solar panels, which involve lots of uh, toxic material. And again, I'm not remotely in favor of that. I think those technologies uh, should be free to compete, just like anything else, as long as there are proper laws. So in general, the attitude is we've got to look at the big picture, and then we see problems we want to solve. The agenda I want to have tonight for fossil fuels is to try to take an objective look at the big picture, both positive and negative, and you know, compare it to other technologies uh, and see how it adds up. And this, my own uh, process of doing this, I had no, when I got into energy, I had no pre-existing interest or knowledge of any of this. This is pretty much the process that I went through in coming to the conclusions that I've come to, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions. Advantage. So let's let's look at it. And just to make it easy, 
I think let's divide the benefits into two questions. What do we use fossil fuels for? And then why do we use them? And this is the really key question. Why do we use them instead of others? And, and to make it even simpler, let's just focus on oil. Because we're in the Rockefeller building, right? Oil is big oil. It's kind of, you know, we have the Dick Cheney people. He worked in the oil industry. Uh, oil is what I first became interested in. So we'll just take it. So what are, what are some of the ways in which we use oil? Yes? War. War. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't understand the gesture. I'm agreeing with what he says, war, because we use a lot of fuel to uh, move our troops and our missile carriers and our, right. you know, our aircraft carriers and transport. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, actually, in, right. no, so, so certainly when countries go to war, um, actually, whoever has the best transportation fuel wins. So if you read the book, The Prize, uh, you learn that in both World War I and World War II, the country that had the most access to oil won. <laughs> well, you have to move the guns. Okay, what else? We got war. It's definitely used to move, it, but it's used to move some other things too, not just guns. Yes? It's called the graduate plastics. What's that? I said to quote the graduate plastics. <laughs> plastics, okay, plastics. Uh, okay, so what kind of plastics? <coughs> like what? What, what can Aaron point to like in this? So he's, he's exactly right. One one major use of oil uh, that we're not always focused on is that you know oil is used to make a huge percentage of our modern materials. So can anyone name any materials in this room that are made of oil? Medicine. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so if you're taking medicine, yeah, oil is, uh, has various properties that make it very good for delivering uh, medicine to your body. What else? What's it? Medicine. Yeah. There's definitely a petroleum cell phone. components. Yeah, most yeah, cell phones will always have low components. Uh, if you want to take a more life and death thing, if you go into a modern hospital, you think almost everything is oil in one way or another. Um, oil is the best way to coat a wall to keep it sanitary. It's full of Teflon, artificial parts, uh, or oil. Pretty much if you look around all the modern materials, all the materials that someone from 1900 or 1850 wouldn't have, um, an enormous, enormous percentage involve oil. So I mean you know, the rubber in your shoes, the glasses, if you're wearing makeup. Um, but again, all the way to things like artificial hearts, bulletproof vests, fireproof jackets, the whole world of modern materials. All right, what else is made of oil? We're kind of missing the obvious here. Light. What's that? <coughs> Light? How so? It's generated by burning. Well, I mean, it, more so in the past. I mean, more so when there was kerosene lamps. Right now, it's, you know, light mostly coming from electricity. Uh, which is not usually used. Oil is not used for because oil's specialty is, and this is the next thing that we always think of, we have war as the example, but more broadly transportation or mobile fuel. So that's mostly what we use oil for. 95% uh, of our transportation fuel is for oil. And I think it's important to understand just how, how life and death this is. So um, when we think of transportation fuel, we often just think, oh, I'm driving my car. But it's much broader than that. So if we look at what are we doing right now? We're, you know, we're sitting around, you know, very comfortable, you know, we're at a wealthy school and we're allowed to relax and talk about ideas, um, you know, with a well-lit room. Now this is something in history that, um, you know, would be very, very special. Certainly it's special that the vast majority of the population has time to relax and, you know, that we've lived as long as we have. And part of it is, and the greater part of it is, 
that we have the ability to produce so many, so much wealth that we can sustain this type of lifestyle. If someone, you know, 200 years ago came here, he, he, this, he'd find this impossible. Like, how are you guys so well-fed and clothed and out here, and why aren't you all working on a farm? Because everyone's working on a farm. And the reason that we're not all working on a farm is because we had an industrial revolution where we could, instead of doing all of our own physical work, we could get machines to do our work for us. So each of us in America has the equivalent of about 600 machine people doing our work for us. And that's why we're at this standard. And if you want to take a really important category of this energy, I don't think there's anything more important than uh, agriculture, right? I mean, that's the very food supply. And I think this is where it's really crucial to understand how we use something like oil. So again, oil is 95% of the, the portable power uh, that we use. And if you look at agriculture, well, has anyone here ever heard of the population bomb? That, that idea? So there's a famous uh, environmentalist named Paul Ehrlich, who's uh, he's, uh, he's still at Stanford University, actually. And he wrote a book called The Population Bomb, I believe it was, is it 1968. And what this captured was that in, in the late 60s, it was viewed that the entire world was on the verge of starvation. There was a population of 3.8 billion people, and the view was that it couldn't be sustained. And there was some understandable justification for this, because if we look at the history of agriculture, um, throughout the centuries and millennia, there's a general trend that, you know, sometimes you'll have a really good crop and then you'll have more kids and, and then, but then you'll have a bad crop and you won't be able to feed people and people will die off. Some people call this the Malthusian trap after the economist Thomas Malthus. So there was this view that we were all going to fall off a cliff and it was, it was very prestigious in terms of this view. So just to read you a quote, there was um, you know, a bunch of the top intellectuals in 1970 said, the world as we know it will likely be ruined before the year 2000. World food production cannot keep pace with the galloping growth of population. Uh, the New York Times said the problem is becoming so acute that every nation, institution, every human being will ultimately be uh, affected. And Paul Ehrlich said hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs of market climate. 1968. So 3.8 billion people back then, and, and they were right in a certain sense. If something didn't change, if something didn't improve, people would have died with that population. Now, what's the population today? About 7 billion. Um, and the population today is better fed than it was back then, in terms of fewer people starving, the average person is better fed. So, basically, someone solved world hunger in a certain sense. You know, when you're young, everyone says, like, I want to solve world hunger, but really, that problem was substantially solved. And there are basically two causes. One was, and this is a controversial subject for another day, genetic engineering and getting, getting what was called the green revolution of getting better at engineering different kinds of crops to grow better. But the other thing was an energy revolution, using much, much more oil uh, to power machines that could, that could, um, that could you know, grow far more crops than we ever could with the technology before then. So there's a real sense in which the people producing that power, the oil industry, did solve world hunger. It sounds, it sounds funny to say because you never associate those, and yet, if we didn't have something that could do what oil does, if we didn't have something that could provide all of that power for all of those machines at a certain price, people would starve. And so this is the point, we, that leads us to the next question, why we use it? Because if it turns out that we're, that we, you know, 
we start getting rid of oil and there's not something as good, that means people will starve. That means people will die. And if we make a mistake and get involved in that, that means we are uh, complicit. Yes, at some shade. So the question is, why do we use oil? And I'll tell you how my own view on this developed. You know, I grew up thinking that, well, basically, you know, oil is just this old-fashioned fuel that, that we just used to use. I mean, this is, this is what, you know, this is what has always powered the cars. And, you know, we just go on the verge of other alternatives, and the ones that you usually hear about are either ethanol, um, which is a, a biofuel, a, a plant-based fuel, and then uh, electric, you know, electricity, direct electricity through batteries, and electric. And then learning about the history of oil was really interesting because in the early 1900s, there was actually this big competition for what's going to be the portable fuel of the future. And it was between oil, ethanol, and the electric car. So this competition has been going on for a while. And then what was even more interesting was that at the time, even back then, people were saying that ethanol and battery-powered cars would be the fuel of the future. So for example, New York Times in 1911, which is 102 years ago, uh, it says the, um, the electric car has been recognized as, quote, much more economic. Uh, the Washington Post in 1915 says prices on electric cars will continue to drop until they are within the reach of the average uh, family. And yet that didn't happen. And interestingly enough, the mileage on electric cars actually isn't that much better uh, than it used to be. Question. Uh, not taking questions. <laughs> so we got to just listen to the rant. I don't think that's the nicest way of hearing. <laughs> My name was on the speech. Okay. So anyway, that that was that's interesting. So in terms of and, and, it, and it turns out that well there were very strong reasons for why this happened. And um, there are a couple of them, but one we can call essentially the strength to weight ratio of oil versus a uh, battery, um, or what's called more formally energy density. So it turns out that the amount of energy that can be stored in you know, a gallon of oil is, depending on how you calculate it, from 12 to 16 times more that can be stored in a battery. And when you're talking about portable power, uh, strength to weight ratio is so important because you need to carry your fuel with you. So that's why you don't have electric planes, because simply the batteries would be too heavy. Now, uh, this, is, this, this is nothing, um, I have nothing against batteries, and I certainly hope batteries and supercapacitor technology uh, improves, but it's turned out that this has been a the same persistent problem for a long time. Now I should say that even if you did use batteries, uh, they're almost all powered by coal and gas. Okay. So that's one. The second one was even more interesting to me, which was, was ethanol. And here's the reason. If you, if you could associate one name with oil, with the gasoline car, the oil-powered car throughout history, what would the name be? What'd you say? Anyone else? Okay, we only got one. Usually everyone screams for yeah, Ford. I mean, so Henry Ford. And it, it turned out that Henry Ford, his first car actually wasn't a gasoline car. It was the uh, it was an ethanol car called the Quadricycle. And not only that, I thought, well, maybe Henry Ford sort of gave up and became a gasoline advocate. Not true. To his dying day, he maintained that ethanol was quote the fuel of the future. And yet, he made all gasoline-powered cars for his career. Why? 
What's that? Because it work. Well, ethanol cars work too in a certain way. Yeah, it was more affordable. He, his company would have gone bankrupt because he couldn't compete. And again, there are really good physical reasons for this. Um, in terms of the resource base with something like corn ethanol, you have to you you have huge inefficiencies because you're trying to take all these dispersed plants and farm them, which requires a lot of oil, and then condense them and process them, and you lose so much energy in the process that it just becomes uh, unbelievably expensive. And again, this is a problem uh, that still hasn't been solved. Basically, the reason that we use oil is really simple, ultimately. Whatever different government policies are, it's the best, cheapest way of providing affordable power that our lives depend on. So if we go back to agriculture, it is literally true that if the policy, let's say, let's take, um, are you guys familiar with Bill McKibben? So Bill McKibben is the leader of the divestment movement. He and I have uh, bit of a history, I mean, I, he wrote, a, he like sort of started the divestment movement and then uh, we debated about it in any case. Uh, Bill is, Bill's policy is that we should outlaw 95% of fossil fuels in the next couple decades. And uh, what I maintain to him in the debate and what I maintain now is that would kill hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. It, that's just, if you do not use the best, cheapest thing, that means that people will have less of something and it will be more expensive. And if it's something that pertains to food, they will die. That's just that's just the way that it works. So what we need to have, it's not really about oil or fossil fuels, it's our commitment to using uh, the best kind of fuel. We at Fassler believe it's important to understand that though we may benefit from fossil fuels, we hold we must hold ourselves, the industry and the government, <laughs> responsible for the destruction intimidation, and injustices of fossil fuels usage across the world. The divestment debate is not about whether we enjoy the benefits of fossil fuels, but rather that we understand the real human and environmental costs of continuing to support a corrupt, poisonous, and exploitative, unsustainable system. Alex Epstein has no standing as a climate or energy researcher. In fact, the Center for Industrial Progress is a for-profit group or we have none of its donor information, and by his own confession, he takes money from corporate and industrial interests. Those of you who prefer a friendly and intelligent discussion about divestment, fossil fuels, and sustainability, stand up now and follow me to the Joss NPR. The divestment campaign will be holding professional ah, and nice entertainment.
said so many things, I forgot the thing you said that I wanted to talk about. Um, well, yeah, you talked about the issue is not about the benefits uh, we derive from fossil fuels. No, in a sense, the issue is the benefits that we derive from a certain caliber of energy. Now, again, it's not false. There's nothing inherently desirable uh, about getting energy from fossil fuels, which is basically compressed dead plants. Right. All I'm saying is that that right now happens to be um, by far the best way, and thus the standard of living we enjoy, including the standard of living that people who are on the verge of life and death enjoy, uh, is due to this. And if we look at trends, this is going to be the case for the foreseeable future. So, for example, who knows what the fastest growing source of energy in the world is? Right now. Natural gas, good guess. Nuclear? Uh, 
they tend to also be the biggest uh, opponents of uh, nuclear and also hydroelectric. So uh, the Sierra Club is completely for banning nuclear power, uh, which emits no CO2, uh, and also uh, devotes much of its energy, energy to shutting down large uh, hydroelectric dams. So it's important to realize when we talk about alternatives that many of the people talking about alternatives are against not just fossil fuels but others, which is kind of suspicious and we can talk about that. But in terms of solar and wind, unfortunately, um, you know, these have had the same fundamental problems for about 75 years. And the number one problem is the sun and the wind don't come in on demand. They don't come in uh, consistently. And thus, you have to spend a lot, you have to try to spend a lot of resources and ingenuity backing up that energy or storing. And with storage, I mentioned, you know, batteries are not very efficient means of storage, so we have no really good fast storage. And so what ends up happening is they get backed up. And can anyone guess by what technology they get backed up? Fossil fuels. Fossil fuels. So if we take Germany, which is the, you know, the world leader in solar power right now, guess how many, guess how many, uh, which is really, has really ratcheted up solar and wind. Uh, does anyone know how many coal plants Germany has shut down, is shutting down? because of all this new solar and wind? Negative 12. So it's building new capacity because ultimately they are dependent sources of energy. So what you would need, among other things, is you need an amazing storage system. And unfortunately, because the, the sunlight and the wind are pretty diluted, they're not super concentrated like oil and coal, um, you still have huge resource issues. So even if the solar panels were free, they wouldn't be. again is not that we should be partisan about one form of energy or another. Or like, you know, I'll say like I love fossil fuels, but that's only in the sense of I love energy and, and that this is providing positive. Again, we'll talk about the negative in a minute. But it's it's really important to realize that the value that we get from these fuels is completely vital to life. Um, and that for the foreseeable future it it um, you know it can't be replaced. And certainly the kinds of policies that Bill McKinnon and others are talking about, the policies that the divestment movement is aimed at, uh, would I, I believe, um, you know, if they were taken seriously, kill billions of people. Now, I don't think they're going to be implemented, but any degree of that, you're really talking about your most hurting people on the margin, people, you know, people who can now have clean water but couldn't before, or the person who just got his first refrigerator or his first electric. Uh, Benefits that we get from fossil fuels and that certainly cannot be replaced, uh, or there's certainly no evidence that it can be replaced by solar and wind. Um, you know, they are life and death. So my my number one word for describing fossil fuels would be vital. Now, I mentioned we have to talk about the environmental issue. Brittany, can you hand out the other sheet of paper? Yeah. So I have some graphs. I just don't want to distract you. Although I wish the other guys had come.
think that work, but I think we need to recruit the entire group because then I'm just sitting here. Well, then I get nervous. But, uh, you should have invited you to debate the head of Pastor Greens. Okay, so I'll start talking, um, just pass this out and I'll describe what's on this slide. So I want to talk about the environmental issue. Um, so I mentioned earlier that with, with wind, um, you know, with wind and solar, you have this, you know, you have this, you know, there's inherent hazards and then if they're used improperly, uh, things can go wrong. But this is this is absolutely true of fossil fuels. I'll talk about global warming in a minute. But you know, for sure, like if you look at coal plants in London in the 1800s, like if you live near something like this, this will you know, you can get really sick. And this is why you know it's very important to have laws uh, uh, protecting us. And ultimately, part of the challenge is to have laws that protect you, you know, from environmental harm, but at the same time allowing you to produce uh, the energy that you Live because if you say, well, there can be no, nothing can have any hazards at all, well, then you have no energy. So, no energy has no hazards, but no energy is more dangerous than no energy is, as one thing put So, you have to, this is again an issue of the big picture. This is what, like, this, this issue is ultimately what caused me to start the Center for Western because I was really surprised when I started looking at the data of. Um, Fossil fuel in the environment because what I, you know, of course I knew all the potential harms and incidents that have happened. And I, I was always taught, okay, well, fossil fuels have this, these economic benefits and these environmental harms, you have to balance them. But then I started looking at, okay, what are the metrics that we measure like environmental good versus environmental bad? And there's things like sanitation, clean air, clean water, how many resources do we have? Uh, for sure, you know, how, how vulnerable are we, whether in climate or safer or more dangerous. And what struck me is that we used dramatically more fossil fuels in the, the 20th century, kept ratcheting up and up, and yet these metrics kept getting better and better. Because I didn't have any idea why this would be when you're using these, you're using more and more energy, and yet all these metrics, it's getting more sanitary, people are having more clean water. You know, they're healthier. Okay, it's a profit, but how does that explain it? Okay, yeah, so, so part of it for sure is that, yeah, and this is, a, this is a big issue, but for sure, with, um, especially as you have if you have the right kinds of laws, you know, people have an incentive to learn how to make their facilities cleaner. So a coal plant today is cleaner than the cleanest form of energy on the years ago. Anyone else? Why is the why are the environment problematic? Well our environment like things like air and water and like our well our environmental quality in terms of our as we experience as we experience. Yeah that this is I should say, I, I definitely come from the perspective of, um, you know, my focus is on environment, as the human power environment, and then we, we have to consider the entire ecosystem, but I think ultimately the standard needs to be benefits human beings, because I don't think it's right to harm human beings in the name of some other 
uh, species. So I'm saying human beings have gotten better off, our environment has been cleaner. Yes? Typically, an industrialized country would have more money that people could move people on the further into the countryside, which would make it less um, damaging to the urban lifestyle. Doesn't make any better, it's still going up into the atmosphere, which is causing greenhouse effect. But right, so we'll get to greenhouse effect in a second. But yeah, that's absolutely right. That's so, um, you know, one, one advantage of just having you know, enough wealth and enough power and technology is you can have decentralized power. So people used to, you know, their energy source used to be the coal stove or the wood stove in their home, and they're breathing in, you know, what we would regard as insane amounts of air pollution. I mean, just imagine sitting at a campfire all day, because why people had bronchitis at 40. And yet, yeah, using technology, they can do that. But the, the broader idea here is that um, the natural environment is not uh, ideally suited to human life. I mean, in terms of we don't automatically get clean water because we need to burn wood. We don't certainly don't automatically get uh, clean air. We certainly don't get automatic sanitation. And what what is required to improve our environment, to make it cleaner, to make it healthier, is a lot of physical work. Just as it takes a lot of physical work to farm. You know, farming is part of our environment. How many food resources we have. So ultimately, the the thing I realized was this energy is just as necessary for a healthy environment as it is for anything else. So just as you need it you know, to build a skyscraper, so you need it you know, to build a sewer system and modern infrastructure. And then this led to the most initially counterintuitive thing at all, which was looking at, you know, as you mentioned, the issue of the greenhouse. Uh, it's interesting, I think the gentleman might have written something about me um, that I denied the greenhouse effect. So the greenhouse effect is a, a scientifically uh, proven phenomenon. You know, basically, certain types of gases are called greenhouse gases or more technically infrared absorbers. And, you know, long story short, they have a certain effect of reflecting light back to the Earth, um, and they cause a certain warming. You know, the question, though, is how much of that and what are the consequences? And we'll talk more about that. But for me, the best, like, the thing I looked at was, okay, well, what you know, how do we get a sense of this? Because you're talking about the climate, it's a million different places. And I realized there was a whole body of, of research called climate danger, which measured like the total amount of, like, are we safer from the climate or more dangerous from the climate? And this is this quote on this uh, document. What I saw was as the, as the fossil fuel usage was going up, the climate danger was, was plummeting to the present. So even though for the last 20, 30 years, you're hearing about, you know, this drought, and you know, you hear all these scary stories in the news, it turns out that if we add them all up, and again, look at the big picture, that it's a much safer place to be. And it turns out that whatever has happened, you know, in the climate, uh, in terms of the greenhouse effect, has been completely swamped by what energy and technology has done. And what that means is that were we to restrict fossil fuels in the way that's proposed, we would become much more in danger from the climate. So if, if, you, if you're worried about danger from the climate, you have to realize energy is your best friend. And you know, if you're concerned about fossil fuels, you absolutely need to look at something like nuclear. It's, you know, it's crazy to rule something like that. Uh, I don't know. Can you give an example of the situation? All I have is my imagination. Okay, sure. Um, so let's take, so the worst form of um, climate-related death is, is a drought. You know, because food you talk, right? And in the news right now, uh, you'll hear a lot of stories about, you know, there's a drought here and there's a drought there. Um, but it's hard to know, but you know, my question is, okay, are we better or worse off from droughts? And if you look at the data since 1920, um, in 
turns out that the deaths due to drought have fallen by 99.98%. And there are a couple of reasons for that, but a huge kind of straightforward one is that when there's a before, now that you have a worldwide fast transportation network, if you have drought, you can alleviate it. Whereas without enough portable power, you can't alleviate it. So, I mean, as a friend of mine put it, in California, he said, you know, drought in California used to mean that we would die, and now it means our strawberries go up in price by a dollar. And it's just that energy is the, you know, fundamental of dealing with climate. Now, this, this doesn't, you can't, Again, we just have to look at the evidence. It doesn't rule out, I, I wasn't ruling out when I looked into this that there couldn't be some effect. I actually thought there would be a negative overall effect. Um, the fact is on net, it's, it's um, you know, fossil fuels, the use of fossil fuels coincides with a much, much safer planet uh, to live on. Yes? Um, what about places that don't have fish? Like, is that, their drought costs them in that sector is death. Right, I mean, so, this, these statistics here, and if you look at like the statistics on this, I don't regard, you see how these are trends, I don't regard this as the end, I regard us in progress. And part of you know what many people in those countries want is to industrialize. Now for sure, even if they don't have transportation there, one nice thing about mobile fuel is you can take food to that. So if you have a humanitarian mission or something like that, uh, something like oil is your best friend, whereas you're not gonna, you're not having a bunch of battery powered boats uh, going over. But for sure, and this is a big issue of energy, more broadly, for everyone in the world to have the same amount of energy usage as, say, Germany, which is also considered a model, we need more than two times the energy production. So when people talk about 95% of fossil fuels and then getting rid of nuclear and, and not having much hydro, that's over 90% of the world's production. And yet we need at least twice that, that much, in terms of giving people a decent standard of living. So, the burden of proof on someone to show that the negative byproducts of the greenhouse effect really justify restrictions is a huge is a huge burden of proof, and um, I would argue that hasn't that hasn't been met at all. And the fact that the data about the actual danger or safety of the climate hasn't been reported, I think, is reflects a certain kind of partisan bias. Uh, I mean, I was very shocked to discover this stuff, and once I saw it, I thought, oh yeah, that's the way to think of it. So we can talk about other aspects of the issue and um, you know, the question period. But I just want to wrap up so we, we can get to the question period. First of all, thank you all uh, who stayed. I, I really appreciate that. And just to, just to sort of just recap my view, you know, ultimately it's that energy, and the reason I, I went into this field was just discovering you know, in my 20s that energy was so fundamental to my life. This was the industry that powered every other industry, that everything I loved and cared about in life was made possible by this invisible force. And yet, I, despite having gone to allegedly you know, the best schools, it's like I had never learned this. And that really got me motivated. At the same time, I thought that the way people thought about it, I didn't like anything they thought about a big picture, so my view uh, fossil fuels is that they're part of a they're part of a progressive process of energy. Over time, we want to discover better and better forms of energy. Um, but right now, these are these are the best. And I mean, the, the benefits of these human life are completely vital. Vital. Uh, the hazards are, are certainly manageable. And I think we have an opportunity to go forward with fossil fuels uh, to keep finding better sources of energy and uh, to 
you know, to ultimately have a better and better future for these lines to keep going up. And on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm really scared about the divestment movement and, and some of the broader trends in the culture because I think unknowingly, because we're not taught the big picture, because we're not, and, and the fossil fuel industry is a really easy scapegoat. I mean, someone can just say, oh, you work for them, you're bad. Uh, you know, that's, that's really, really dangerous. You know, whenever you have a target that's easy to attack, uh, a lot of the worst things in history have happened when there was a target that was easy to attack. Okay. So I hope that this makes you uh, think a bit more about it. And uh, I, on the hand, I hope you fill out the questionnaire and you can check if you want to sign up for the mailing list. And let's take questions. Uh, let me get people. Um, so I just want to take a question. Sure. Um, do you use the word like objective in the big picture? Mm. Well, I certainly like to have the option. Yeah. 
depending on where I live. So yeah, this is the issue that comes up a lot, which is the issue of you know what's called uh, conservation. And to just give you a, like a little bit of the historical context for this issue, it was very big in the in the 70s, uh, particularly because there was an uh, there was an oil crisis and people were saying you know we have to live with a lot of today's leading environmentalists saying we have to live with less. And they were talking, you know what? They were talking about how we need to not increase a particular kind of energy, which was electricity. Now, since then, our use of electricity has jumped enormously, thanks in part to what industry? Computers. So if those prescriptions, and they talk then about excess technology, we don't need all these gadgets and whatnot, but without that, we probably see one of them in this room would not be a lot. So the issue with energy is, energy is like, is like money. It's always possible to misuse it, but it's always possible to use it well at the same time. So energy, energy is the power to do work. So let's let's take issues of water, which you know is a, is a concern. There are reasons to be concerned about maybe the future of water in this country. Some of that, have, a lot of that has to do with policy. But in any case, one major thing you can use energy for if you can produce it cheaply, well enough, is desalinating seawater. And if you can desalinate seawater, uh, among other things, you never have a water problem. Okay. So that's the, that's the kind of, and you know, I can name 10 other possible things that we could use it for. Um, again, right now you have people who don't even have a light bulb or a refrigerator, but I, I don't view myself as using excessive energy. I think I use just the right amount of energy and I would like to use more. I, I sometimes like, will tell Bill McKibben, you know, he, he goes around the world flying planes telling people that they shouldn't be flying planes. And I, I, I but I don't say, oh, you're a hypocrite, like, no, no. I'm jealous of that. Like I want to be able to travel more, and you know, the more that we have great transportation fuels, the more I can I can do that. The more broader, the more energy we have, the more you know, the more money I can make for any given task, the more leisure time I can have. So I, I think of I think you, you don't want to be you never want to think when you're dealing with human beings we've done enough or we have enough. No, I don't I don't ever believe that. Certainly not with the state of the world today. Okay, one follow-up. Well, just like, in terms of how leisure time Like, I feel like a lot of the technology that we've created sort of has been at, like, like, people just, like, are a little bit more lazy, maybe. Like, it's allowing machines to take over things that human are, humans are capable of still doing, uh -huh. but we want to have leisure time, we want to We are always going to have disagreements about that. Um, but if it's on the level of, hey, Alex, I think you're wasting money or you don't need this, um, you know, the way to resolve that is persuasion. So for instance, I'll just take a random thing. I think, I think people check email way too often. I think it's unbelievably corrosive, and I check email once a day. Um, now, I, but I don't try to make a law about that. But I do persuade people, and I have persuaded a lot of people, and it's made their life a lot better. So I think it's just important to take the view of the fact that someone is misusing a value doesn't mean they shouldn't, we shouldn't be free to use it. Yes. Oh, sorry, this, this guy right here. Um, in this whole lecture, I mean, you really focused on 
the negative effects of the divestment campaign and you're kind of defending fossil fuels and what they do for us. And like, I mean, in some ways, that makes sense. I mean, fossil fuels really do help. And they do save lives currently, that's true. But I mean, I think the divestment campaign at its core keeps us like the positive idea of if they get away from divestment fossil fuels and give more money to alternative fuels, then hopefully with more money, which unlike
question for the live stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, what happens when she's in my beloved oil uh, runs out? So I mentioned that energy is, is a progressive process. You're always trying to figure out better and better ways uh, of doing things. And I indicated nuclear power as that's a, that was a, that's a real progressive direction. And that's a technology that can provide cheap power on demand. It's just been restricted by the same movement as the anti-fossil fuel movement. Now, as a practical matter, uh, you know, 
we're discovering better and better ways of getting oil for the foreseeable future. There's, um, if you look at the amount of oil we've used so far, it's, 10, no, it's one uh, trillion barrels, and there are at least 10 trillion in the Earth. So the whole issue is just an issue of technology. How fast does the technology evolve? And what's happened is people keep thinking we're running out, but the technology gets better and better. You can also make oil out of coal. You can make oil out of gas. So there's no issue with, with running out. Uh, but more broadly, there's, nothing, there's no issue with running out because you can find ingenious ways of doing things as long as you're free. The problem is right now, we're being prevented from using the best and forced to use the worst. So why are you so They should compete. I'm just saying that, they, that these are these are like these are the worst energy failures. So I'm saying that there's, it's very suspicious that nuclear is opposed and they're supportive. I'm saying that's for ideological reasons, not economics. So just as someone following the energy landscape, um, if I'm going to bet on what's going to improve human life, I'm not going to bet on on sort of using these enormous arrays of unreliable energy. That's just simply. It does. It just has been a massive failure. Yes. Oh, sorry. Um, you mentioned earlier that we should never feel like we should never not want to continue having more or something like energy, for instance. Like, yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, I agree with you, but I do think that that's kind of double-edged sword. And do you think that in some way we're kind of in this environmental bubble where the great positive to from the use of fossil fuels will become eclipsed by the negative impacts of using fossil fuels, such as the rise of sea levels. Um, rise of sea levels, for one, that's a great um, example of population loss, migration, things that will, I mean, the scientists are predicting will happen. Mm -hmm. Well, let me, let me separate the question. Like, so there's, there's one, there's one of, is there inherent, because you, you mentioned, I said, all, I mean, I say all things being equal, more energy is better. So one is a circumstance, so the first part of the question is, all things being equal, do I maintain that? Absolutely. And then, but then the second question relies on my estimate of what are the, you know, what's the relationship between greenhouse gases and sea levels and, and those kinds of things. And as I said, the, the trend, um, you know, the trend we have is, a, is much, much better. And if we look at, uh, if we look at, so, we really have to sort of, I think there's an assumption with climate change, as far as I can tell, that if man is impacting it, then it must be bad. Because whenever people just say, hey, we're changing the climate, and I sometimes ask people, okay, so if we were changing it to be a little bit cooler, would that be bad? And I, well, I'm just, I'm curious. Does anyone think if, if we were changing it to be a little bit cooler? We're Climate change is inevitable, but we're accelerating. Um, okay, that's that, that, but that's a theory that goes from the idea that warming accelerates climate change. The only mechanism for, for accelerating the change in climate that's causative is warming. Right, so, so all these not cooling, so I'm sure if it was cooling, that would be negative too. I think, I think you're, let, let me just, I'll get to that in a second, but um, if, I'm just curious, show of hands. If we were, if we were causing it to become a little bit cooler, would that be bad? Who says yes? Okay, so that's that's interesting. Because hold on a second. You were talking about how we so we're not suited to be in the environment. So the fear of change I think comes from the fact that we need to like have some sort of stability 
Because that would make them the greatest climate forecast we can Maybe that's not a Maybe that's not a Maybe that's not a Maybe that's not a Okay. Uh, maybe. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I know you said that. I understand you weren't listening to this. But he predicted the climate 200 years. This is there. Has it ever been done in history? Okay. I I control it. Yes. Unrelatedly, but relatedly, because we're talking about you know humanity, big questions like this, um, and we're talking about maybe the divestment movement also. Um, I, I just say like I, in, this, in the 70s in New York, there was this group called Young Lords, and they started out because they wanted more rights for um, um, Puerto Ricans, they wanted more equality. Um, but there were some problems with the movement, and um, for example, it didn't include women. So a woman caucus, women's caucus forms, and they submitted, um, they argued for their ideas, and eventually the movement became more inclusive. And I'm just wondering like. Why provide such a target? Like, fossil fuels improve the planet. Like, why not? That's you know so much. You know, know so you know so much about this. Why not? Why, why can't we like? If, if there are problems with the movement or like there are problems with views, why not like try to make them work together? I I tried for an hour and a half, and. That guy flew right to the next place and told people to adopt policies I think will kill people. So that's why. It is a fact that fossil fuels have improved the planet, but they're continuing to do so, and I see no evidence to the contrary. And I, that's exactly the more outrageous people think it is, the more they need to hear it. Because I consider it uh, an understatement. Yes. Uh, oh, I missed you. Okay, okay, okay. So I understand that like, my quality of life increases because of fossil fuels. Yeah. I also am an individual that is uncomfortable with using them. So if that's the position that I take, and I respect or I understand that for fossil companies that have and use fossil fuels, they'd like to continue using fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. I also know that many of these companies also have sectors that deal with alternative energy sources. Mm -hmm. How do I, as an individual, try to enact change that encourages companies to increase the percentage of their own funds to
is that you can really make this work on a certain scale so that other people have the confidence that it can be done. And this is what every technology does. It starts out small, you know, it works. Uh, so I think I think it would be much better suited to try to find the best, if you really believe in solar wind, find the best companies and try to get a group of people together and live and, and really completely be supported on those. Now I think there are enormous obstacles to that and it would not work well now, but that would be the direction uh, to push for. And it's much more effective to vote with your wallet as a consumer than as an investor. Because as a consumer, you can much more easily create change with a group like that. As an investor saying, like, I mean, most of the people here right now are not invested in ExxonMobil. That doesn't do anything. Um, but you are all using their fuel. Um, Maybe they should all take off their sneakers. Yeah, well, that, you know, people, people can decide on that. But I, I still, I, I respect the question. Yes. Chernobyl, what? 
Empiricism is selfish sometimes. Like, look around you, though. But like, look at the things that aren't around you. Okay, I don't quite understand, but let me just get to how nuclear power works. Okay, so in a normal, in a normal modern plant, what's interesting is that in terms of depth due to radiation and the, and like the, the entire modern history of nuclear power, there are zero. So there's so this is really interesting. We're taught to be afraid of this, and there is zero. So in Fukushima, a, a piece of equipment fell on someone. But in terms of radiation deaths, it's, it's zero. Now, why is this? Just death from cancer, though. No, none, none demonstrable. These are, I mean, people just, so part of it is that there's this idea that radiation is inherently destructive. Radiation has become this, this scare where the, oh my gosh, things are radioactive. And radiation, like anything else, like toxicity or whether something is a carcinogen, carcinogenic is an issue of degree and context. So right now, you two right there are emitting more radiation from the potassium in your blood on him than he would be, and he would get from standing next to a nuclear power. So take that for whatever danger uh, it's worth. So the question of radiation is, what's that? Okay. Yeah, I know, exactly. There's walls around it. Just like there's walls around it. Okay, okay. So, so this is demonstrably for a huge amount of time the safest thing. And the reason is because although every technology has risks, nuclear is the easiest to contain for one basic reason, which is that it cannot, uh, it cannot explode. The nuclear power plant cannot explode. The nuclear bomb can, but it has 30 times the concentrated uranium. So if someone, as, as one of the best energy thinkers ever said, if someone blew up a nuclear power plant, he should win a Nobel Prize because he would have discovered a new law of physics. So the fact that it can't explode means that if something goes wrong, people don't die, they have time uh, to react. But what about the waste? Okay, so the waste is, again, nobody has been harmed from the waste. And the reason is that because it's not the most dangerous thing in the world. Right now it's stuck in, in pools. And you can go swimming in those pools within like a meter or two and not get harmed at all. So it's not as if this is, the reason it's, it's there's just this voodoo scariness that's arbitrarily imputed to this. I mean, here's an example. Like if you eat, you can, if, if I agree to eat the same amount of, of, of uh, plutonium as you eat arsenic, uh, caffeine I should say, you will die first. So we have a pot, so there was a physicist named Bernard Cohen and he said, I will eat as much plutonium as anyone eats caffeine, because he knew they would die. We have to look, at, I use the term objectively, um, at what are the actual <laughs> risks of this, and I would say that this is, there's just, this has just been three decades of scare science viewing radioactivity as somehow a worse way to die than something else. And the truth is that radioactivity is much easier to contain and deal with than things that are combustible uh, slash explosive. So we've been, there, are better, there might be better ways to store waste, but so far, nuclear waste is, you know, is not an issue, and we can explain why. So I just find it odd. The way we're taught to think about safety is really scary to me because we're scared about things like nuclear waste, and yet the way we're going to die is texting while driving. I mean, things like that. I mean, we can talk about nuclear waste and eating a Big Mac, and the Big Mac is going to be more dangerous than you know anything you would ever get from nuclear waste. So really, it's important to be scientific. And particularly when people are talking about opposing fossil fuels, to give these kind of flimsy reasons for opposing the one thing that could in the future replace them that we know about, it, there's something else going on. What is the, the question based on the 
Yes, and this is the whole question of technology and what's called the precautionary principle. Do you, what's that? Oh, um, do we take a stance of innocent until proven guilty uh, towards something like, uh, you know, something nuclear waste? We take a, a position of, uh, of evidence is required to make a claim. So if someone claims that by using my cell phone, I'm going to give myself cancer in five years, he needs to give a lot of evidence. If someone claims that this substance that we this spent fuel, which by the way can be recycled, which they eventually which they do in France. Um, if they claim it's a danger, they have to provide evidence. Because otherwise what you're doing is every time you want to take a step forward, someone can just make up that there is a danger. Um, so the whole principle of technology is you take forward action and if someone Someone can only stop it if they can prove that it's, it's damaging. And that's, that's the policy that's led to the whole modern world. And without that, um, yeah, the policy of the Middle Ages was encouraged. You couldn't do anything. Yes? Yeah, I wanted to echo your point about the nuclear issue. In Japan, the tsunami killed thousands of people. Actually killed them. But that issue was buried because of the nuclear issue. Transportation and portable power is uniquely 
important in a modern, in just any economy. So that's why oil has for so long been the number one source of power in the world, even though it's, it's hardly used for electricity uh, at all. But now, around the world, electricity demand is growing so much, and really coal is the way, you know, is the way to do it. So in, I, the thing I was saying chemically, though, is you can go through chemical processes to convert these fuels to one another. So you can convert CH4, which is what natural gas essentially is, methane. You can, you can do what's called gas to liquids, and then you can do what's called coal to liquids. Um, and then you can also, with coal and, and gas, so this is if you want transportation fuel, uh, there's a fuel called methanol, which essentially you're, it's, it's kind of like half oil, half water. And the nice thing about that, although it only has half the energy of oil, it, you can make it out of anything. You can make it out of crops, you can make it out of coal. So with this whole spectrum of hydrocarbons, there's essentially an unlimited uh, future. And yeah, that's. Yes? Um, in response to a previous question, I think it was yours, um, you had said that um, we should vote with our dollars as consumers rather than investors when it comes to fossil fuels. Um, and I was just curious what you meant, like how you see like us voting as consumers in terms of fossil fuels. Like, so for example, if I believe in the local food movement and I, you know, like act as a consumer, right. vote with my dollars and buy local food, how would I do that with fossil fuels? Or, you know, with yeah. Uh, I just want to clarify, I, I'm not saying anyone should do that. I do well, not. Yeah, no, like, and I'm against, and I would argue with someone against doing that. But I'm saying if it's voluntary, you have every right to do it. So if, if you were to do it, it would be something like, you know, very rich people right now, for instance, will build, uh, like I think Mark Ruffalo built himself like a giant solar array, like Tesla, and he pretends that, of course, there's a lot of oil and coal involved in that whole process, which I don't know if he knows, but in any case, leaving aside any hypocrisy, that's the kind of thing you would do. I mean, you would, you would, you would pay more for other technologies. I, I was in uh, DC, there was a big climate rally, and I counter, I tried to talk to some people there, and you know they were all wearing like oil-based jackets, which I think they should, but if, if they are against oil, then they should, they should not use petroleum products. Again, I don't support this at all, but I'm just saying that is an actual, if you look historically, like economic boycott is a real way of affecting change if you can get enough people on your side. And, and it, it is very, with the right cause, it's a very, it's a very, very valid. Uh, instrument. So, for example, um, let's say you know you think a company has a racist policy, I mean that's a great kind of occasion to just say, look, this company, like we should not support this company, and you can do a lot of damage very, very quickly with something like this. All right. Yes. So, what you just said about if some, if a company is doing something racist, then we shouldn't support them. Then, how does the the injustices that the coal Natural gas and natural gas; those practices, those companies are very strongly racist and classist. For instance, you know the the coal mine collapse in West Virginia mm -hmm. in 2010. That was due to the due to uh, a coal company, Massey, you know, preferring to pay a fine, a safe a fine because of the safety mm -hmm. violations as opposed to actually fixing the safety violations. Or for instance, the you know, the coal you know, the location of coal plants in very low uh, low income areas. 
for you know company. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I got the question. Um, this goes back to the example that I put. Were you here at the beginning? Yes. Okay. So for for the wind power example of uh, you have to differentiate between the technology or industry as such and then any given uh, abuse of it. So in terms of the coal mining, I mean. I, as I've gotten more interested in this issue, I've met a lot of people in that industry, and they are generally very glad to be in that industry, and they're very proud of it, and they're very resentful of people who try to uh, to stop them from being. They don't it's certainly not regarded as racist or classist, except in the sense that it, it provides an opportunity for them. So I, I don't think at all. I, I don't know what classist means. Um, so I know I don't think it's racist, but if, if there was, if there is an illegitimate. You know, practice like if you know Massey is doing something wrong, then it should be prosecuted for that. But there's nothing inherently different about. It. I mean, you could say you could make a much stronger case for racism and discriminating against poor people with the whole manufacturing, the whole mining process of solar and wind, because those are deliberately delegated to places with enormously cheap labor and very low standards, because those technologies perform so poorly on the market. That they need every advantage they can get. Whereas you can pay someone $100,000 a year in North Dakota and still make a lot of profit on oil because it's so superior. So, right now, the record of the so called green companies is abominable to use respect. So, we need to be nonpartisan about it and we need to be in favor of the right kinds of laws. Um, and when we see problems, we should fight them. But to say the industry is racist is. is but then, how do, so for instance, uh, the IMF? Uh, said really two days ago that coal subsidies globally amount to about 1.12 trillion. Mm -hmm. And how is like to say that it's a level playing field and right. that you know certain solar companies are getting handouts? Well, the fossil fuel industry is definitely guilty of those handouts, and Exxon and Chevron and Shell they fight tooth and nail to keep those despite whether. All right, so I'll give you a quick answer now. If you want more, I'll go to, go to industrialprogress.net because this is a big, it's a big discussion of subsidies. But essentially, what they call subsidies are either, um, the usual thing they call subsidies is they think that, that um, basically we should add on a lot of extra taxes for the damages that they think that coal oil companies do. So it's not, that, it's not that the US government is giving the oil companies any money. They give them a certain tax treatment, which has to do with whether they're, what is regarded as business expense or not, and that's a whole issue. But the main thing in these, these calculations, and actually, we're gonna post a debate soon, I debated the main guy who's in charge of these calculations, it's called Oil Change International, so you can see how that turned out. Um, but he, it's essentially just, I mean, I think they're, they're just completely wrong. And one of the things that they do is they say that there have been all these costs, all these damages uh, from climate change, and the data just completely contradicts that. And at the same time, they ignore the fact that we get tons of value from oil that we don't pay for. So for example, if you if you have to use an ambulance right now and that takes a gallon of oil, how much was that worth to you? Was it worth four dollars? It's worth like, you know, four hundred thousand dollars. So we it's just, there's a whole debate in economics called externalities, which we're running out of time to talk about. But fortunately, we've talked about ad nauseum on our website, so we can do that. Yes? Um, so, like, in terms of, you talked about like what we can do as individuals to change this, but in terms of like what is the best thing like on a policy level for like a nation or what's happening, like in the future have the best source of energy? Do you think it's sufficient 
just not to have any regulations and just to have all the kinds of energy compete against themselves, or maybe like uh, some form of like carbon credits like we've seen for power plants that install sufficient scrubbers and things, or maybe actual like subsidies for alternative energy. So like, what would be your ideal? Yeah, my ideal is for what I'll call energy liberation, which means that you have consistent laws about um, pollution and safety, um, you know, based on science and complete freedom. And the idea is I don't regard CO2, um, yeah, I don't think the evidence at this point shows that there's, you know, that there's this big harm. Again, that the, the energy that's emitting the CO2, any more than I think that, that us emitting CO2 breathing is a harm. You know, right now the machines that we need as extension of ourselves to do hundreds of times more work, they breathe CO2 just like we do. And the benefit of that is tremendous. And Think there's evidence that, that there's this that there's this big harm. I don't think there's evidence of temperature. I don't think there's evidence that warming is inherently bad. I think I just I think the issue has been very uh, distorted. If you could prove something scientifically, then it would be a different issue. But that's that's my idea. And it seems like a lot of people like don't take very much note of the fact that we actually have managed to clean up a lot of these things to a great degree through like very positive government policies and like, rather than punishing about the progression of technology, and the gentleman is not here anymore, um, mentioned the issue of becoming wealthier, you can, you can have higher and higher standards of what, um, what, what's defined as pollution. So let's, I like to use the example of, let's say we just invented fire, right? We invented fire, it's the greatest thing in the world, and yet we have to breathe where there's, you know, where there's fire, there's smoke. So we are, unfortunately, we have to have smoke, our kids have to have smoke. That's not the greatest byproduct. Um, but you wouldn't say, oh, fire should be illegal, or even fire is a pollutant, because you don't have any technological or economic recourse. As technology goes, you can raise what constitutes pollution to higher and higher standards, and that's part of what's happened. But it, each stage requires the previous stage. So you needed at the stage at which coal um, you know, was a lot less clean to have the stage where it's, it's more clean. Um, and so I think we can keep going on that trajectory. I would just say, though, for me, the, the biggest takeaway of all of this is not, I don't think of this in terms of, like, my, I know the divestment thing is framed as how do we get off, my, my view is there's a huge threat to our way of life. What do we do about that? And I'd say, industrialprogress.net, check that out. Yes. Oh, wait, no. Uh, I'll ask, you'll ask the last question. All right, so I think that, I'll get to it. I, I don't know how many of the people that you had this issue left in the room with, but I think one of the major issues you have with some of your audience, one of the differences apart from the people who left it with, uh, is that uh, you're looking at it as a as a very people-first issue. People are important, and some people are looking at our effects on on the entire planet, and some some people are saying, well, oh, we should minimize our effect on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so as a conservation issue, we want to conserve the planet. I think I think it's important, you know, to present how does how does this fuel and the power and the energy that we get from it allow us to do things. Without this, uh, without the energy that it's giving us, I don't think we have the power to actually change things in the future. We go back to Hunter and Gather where we can't affect the planet at all, not positively, not negatively. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the different one of the things you need to show are like I think something that you should talk about if you can, this isn't phrasing the question very well, um, is the, the issue that what you're buying, what you're choosing, if you choose to go away from fossil fuels, is to take away power from us to do anything. 
we can't help people and people will die, but we can't help the planet either. It's already there are already issues with people that have the planet. And if we choose to divest from our current fuel power, there's no substitute. We won't be able to do anything. We're simply choosing to take ourselves out. Yeah, we're not. So I mean I, I definitely you said something like people first, which is, is definitely my my view, but but people first doesn't mean that you're not concerned with the rest of the planet. Precisely you are concerned about it, but you're concerned about it for enjoyment because you know, there are systems that affect your life and those kinds of things. And so one one thing to your point is that there's a really good essay actually that's uh, at the bottom of that graph that I gave out. It's worth reading, it's called Humanity Unbound. He talks about something, I forget the title, but something like how fossil fuels protected man from nature and nature from man. And I don't quite agree with that title, but one thing he points out is that, you know, with these concentrated sources of power, one thing you're not doing is you're not burning down all your forests, which used to be. So as soon as we start getting away from fossil fuels, you're just going to burn all your wood. I mean, for sure, agriculture, slash, and burn, um, et cetera, et cetera. And what you put, I guess the use I think of is I really like visiting places and enjoying them, and my capacity to do that is entirely made possible by, by mobile fuel. I mean, without oil and its equivalent, there's no, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, I've never been to you know, Italy, I've never been to France, and I can never go all the places that I want to go. So if we, if we actually want to enjoy nature, we need to be really grateful for the power uh, to do that. Otherwise, the Grand Canyon is something you read about in a book. And you know, unfortunately, I know you guys don't like me picking, some of you don't like me picking on the uh, um, given, but I mean, he says explicitly as the rule, he says that we shouldn't really be able to travel by plane. So he says that we need to experience it over the internet. He said the, the net is the one solvent we can still through. Jet travel can't be our salvation. So the kind of trip you can take with the click of a mouse will have to substitute. So I don't like that. When was that written? What's that? Yeah, when and where was that written? That was written in his book, Earth, which was released in 2010 on page 200. Uh, last question. Yeah, I wanted to address again like the standard of living issue. Um, okay. And I don't, I mean, I don't disagree that hospitals have kind of created this what we live in now. And yes, there have been better improvements, um, but I'm still a proponent of kind of accelerating these alternate energies and more in the short term than long term. I think it does need to happen immediately. And so I guess my question for you is more about, you know, you say like, well, if we get rid of hospitals right now, people won't have the same things. A lot of people will be negatively affected. A lot of people will die, it's true. But like, how can we accelerate it so fast? And I, I just don't see there being a defense for an industry that is accelerating climate change as much as but, it is. But, 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 but I, I, I we disagree. But I, I mean, I agree that it is accelerating climate change. And I think, you know, if you think of like, oh, he's gone, the ice, like the ice water melting, like at the rate it's going, the planet will warm. And at the rate it's going, like maybe your lifestyle in Orange County won't be as comfortable as it is right now. And a lot of people in a lot of places won't even be in like inhabitable areas. So if we're talking about standard of living and trying to maintain that, how will we maintain it in 100 years when there is so much CO2 in the atmosphere that a lot of people can't even live where they are living? Well, people, okay. Let me try to 
it's often said, and you raise this point, that you know we're designed to live in a certain climate, and it's kind of fragile, and you know we worry about if we change it. And my view is that there's no evidence that's true. We are masters of climate change. Human beings, even if you just take the United States of America, we live in every single climate imaginable. We have polar climates. We've got Arizona. That Southern California, we've got every climate imaginable, all different types of storms, and we all can expect to live to eat. And the reason is, is because we have the thing, and yet no one in any climate in history could have this kind of life. And the reason is because the thing that's so precious, the real thing that's precious and unique and that has never happened before, and that we really need to be concerned about first and foremost, is a high energy industrial civilization. Because we know that without that, um, we can't live this long. Before this, you know, before this kind of civilization, people live for 30. So the most precious thing that we have in the world around us is our ability to make it better. So if you say, well, there's going to be more CO2 in the atmosphere, there used to be 10 times more CO2 in the atmosphere in life right? There used to be many degrees higher. It was a lush world. Whatever it is, what I'm afraid of is not having energy, because I'm certain that means death. And, and we, I, I don't think there's any basis at all for favoring these the sun and the wind of all the things that we get energy from. I mean, any more than if, if someone said, let's produce all of our energy by like gold. Well, you know, you would just, it wouldn't work. You would come out of it. it is, some technologies are just bad technologies, so I don't know why we would go in that direction. What well, we really want. Rearranging lifestyles but they don't need as much energy. Well, I mean, then that's what I'm against, for the reasons that I said. Again, you need twice as much energy you can get to Germany. So, what I just, the point I wanted to make is that you know, the reason I say fossil fuels improve the planet is because we live overall in the greatest planet history, and it's because we're a high energy planet. So whatever we do, that has to be you know, a priority number one. And with that, thank you for staying. And All right, so that, that was that. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Usually I thank our guest, but uh, I was in effect the guest. So let me just thank the students of Vassar, who certainly who put on the event, particularly Julian Hassan, and then also uh, Brittany Rivera, uh, who helps organize events for CIP, who actually came out just to make sure that everything went smoothly. Uh, you know, she volunteered to, to come out. Uh, which was incredibly helpful and made my life a lot easier and I think made made everyone's life a lot easier. So thank you, Brittany, for that. Also, thank you to, to Julian in particular. He, he made these amazing posters of my book cover, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, and I got to take a full-color one home. Now, the other one I would have taken home, but it was, it was uh, destroyed by the vandals slash hecklers who, uh, slash walkouters, who seem to think it's okay to take someone's property and destroy it because they happily took a picture of it. So I think that's in the hands of the, the relevant uh, people. But it was it's really cool to get that poster. So thank you, Julian. Anyone wants to invite me to a future event and give me such a poster, you will, you will certainly thrill me. And with that, I, I pretty much said everything I had to say about this event before. Um, just one more thought is that what struck me during this event, particularly during the beginning, was on college campuses how much hostility toward the fossil fuel industry exists, and just how much how much ignorance exists, and 
maybe most of all, how dehumanized the industry is in people's eyes. Because even if you think it has very problematic byproducts, I find it just so odd to talk about just saying a whole industry is evil and horrible and dirty. And these kids are saying it with such righteous indignation and they don't even know anything. All they know is this, this the comic book villain that's created by the media that we're all supposed to hate. And it's this is a, a wrong thing to do to any kind of industry. And then it's just doubly wrong that this is the, the foundational industry of our entire civilization. So uh, we have a lot of work to do in terms of getting people to value industry. That includes getting people to value the people who work in industry. And that's perhaps a decent segue to where I am right now, which is uh, in uh, Calgary, Alberta, where I'll be talking to a lot of different people in the oil sands industry this week. Uh, well, it's a Thursday, so this week and next. And a lot of the focus will be on how to get the world to value what you do. And a big ingredient of that will be how to take the moral high ground. So, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, as always, if you need to contact me, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to always check out the website, industrialprogress.net, for all kinds of new stuff. And if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, go to industrialprogress.net right now to get your weekly dose of life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. That's it for this week. Actually, we're about to record another episode, so make sure to check that one out on the website and on iTunes. But for this episode, that's it for now. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.